First Thessalonians, let's take our Bibles and journey back there again this Sunday. Um, we always want to be word-saturated and know more and more about our Bibles. And uh, this week uh, is the uh, wrap-up week for signing up for this next semester's classes for Great Lakes Bible Institute. So uh, we're preparing to have even more creative ways for you to be word-saturated uh, for now. Uh, continue to sign up uh, for that class. I know that those classes, I know that your hearts will be tremendously blessed. Um, I know that Pastor Mike, where are you? He usually bolts, checks on something for me and comes back in. How long did Pastor Mike teach school? Is that a decade? Ten years, I believe? He's got a tremendous grasp on uh, Christian education, but what's interesting about the class that he's going to be teaching uh, this semester, it's a whole biblical theology of how a Christian is educated. I think sometimes we think that Christian education is kind of encapsulated in, a, in what we know to be the Christian day school, and certainly that was very beneficial to a lot of us. Um, but he's going to look at a biblical theology of how a Christian is educated from Genesis to Revelation. And I know your hearts will be encouraged by that. In that class, and Pastor Hobie continues with uh, a systematic study uh, of theology, um, and a study of the Holy Spirit, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know your hearts will be encouraged by that as well. Right. Let's pray together as we continue on in our study briefly of these five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, does anyone need a Bible to follow along with? If you don't have a Bible in your device, our ushers have Bibles that they'd be glad to give you. If you just slip up your hand, they'll find you. And uh, we'll be um, looking at a number of verses just within this letter this morning. All right, keep your hands up high, they'll find you. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need your help this morning as we consider your word, particularly in relationship to what this letter teaches us about people who eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that helps them conduct the way they live day to day. So give us your wisdom and the help of your spirit as we study along in Christ's name. Amen. Towards the end of 2018, we just took a couple weeks to look at two Old Testament characters who were looking forward to the birth of Jesus and how they live their lives because we understand from Scripture that as we anticipate seeing Jesus, that anticipation governs the way we live day to day until we see him. They were looking forward to Jesus' first advent, his birth. He came and we studied the character of their life. Last week we looked at a number of Bible passages and we said we were going to settle down in this letter uh, for this week and maybe the next time we're together. We'll try to wrap it up this week. But even the New Testament talks a lot about the believer's hope of seeing Jesus. When are we going to see him? The Bible says that that could happen at any moment of any hour, and really only God knows when that'll be. But we know that when we see Jesus, which could be before I draw my next breath or you blink next, that we're going to meet him in the air. He's not coming his feet won't touch the ground. We went through those Bible passages last week, and this is the taking away of the church from this world. 
And that's the believer's hope. That's the salvation that we have physically from this globe that's affected by sin in so many very ugly ways. We're going to see our Jesus. The Bible says that we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him as He is. And there's not to be a greater anticipation in the Christian life than the anticipation of seeing Jesus. A lot of exciting things that we anticipate. What I am finding out, the older I get, and I think it's natural, so this is not a criticism, this is an analogy, that the older we get, the more we look forward to seeing Jesus. When I was younger, I was walking with the Lord, but there was a lot of things that I passionately anticipated. Right? Athletic goals and academic goals, vocational goals, domestic goals, right? Getting that first house. And I can remember being consumed after having rented for years with getting that first house for my wife because I promised her dad that I would take care of her. And he offered me all kinds of money to which I said no to. And after I said no to that, he still sent me $500 a month to help take care of his daughter. And after the first six months, we went to this house for vacation over Christmas and I returned all the checks uncashed. And I told him, I told you I was gonna take care of your daughter, right? I was a bulldog with that, right? I don't need your money. What a fool I was. <laughs> but I anticipated getting that first house, right? This Genesis 2.24 thing was real for me. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they'll become one flesh. We can do this. God can do this. You know what he did. But you know what? We applied for that first house and, and it, it, we didn't get it. And it was devastating. I don't know why. I remember standing and talking with one of the members of our church after we lost that house and this tear welled up in my eye. And I was like, what am I crying for? It's like we didn't get this house. This was a goal that consumed me. I can't tell you that I had the maturity back then at 26 years old, to be consumed with Jesus coming. Because I was looking for a house, right? But I really wanted to see Jesus. But I just started to say, as we get older, we crave his coming more. This, this, this world <laughs> is just passing away and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. And we want to be with the will of God, Jesus Christ himself. The living word of God, just more and more the older you get. So as we grow in Christ-likeness, our anticipation of seeing Jesus will grow along with that. And so regardless of your age, just make sure that you are at least regularly considering Jesus could come today. And like we looked at in 1 John chapter 2, through the beginning of 1 John chapter 3, in 2 Peter chapter 1, that when he appears, when he appears, you'll be able to stand before him with great confidence. What's really interesting to me is this. We're all going to be able to stand before God in great confidence if you're born again because Jesus is in you. 
Jesus has the utmost confidence in his son. But for some reason, the writers of Scripture, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, also attached to that moment of seeing Jesus, not just that we'll be perfectly okay with God in Jesus Christ, but they attached our humanity to that as well. That you might be confident before him at his coming. Positionally, we're confident. When we're given the righteousness of Christ, the moment we're saved, we're never going to get any more or less than that. If we have a bad spiritual hair day or a good spiritual hair day, God doesn't love us any less or any more based on how we are and we live in any one particular day because he loves Jesus. But his grace does compel us to live holy and righteously and godly as we await his appearing. So if Jesus comes before the end of this service, God's desire for you is to stand before him and not have to look away in shame even though positionally you're perfectly okay with him. It's interesting to me. It's interesting to me. I've often wondered if the writer of the book of Revelation, when it says God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, those are not only tears of joy, but tears of sadness. Only because of those other texts as we put them all together. But regardless, we looked at this letter last week and we noticed five times that the imminent return of Jesus is mentioned and it's at the end of each chapter. And that, that governing, that, that passion to see him governs the way we live. And then we studied together what we called in our first point, the nature of biblical faithfulness. The nature of biblical faithfulness. Remember we looked at the end of the book in chapter 5 and we said it all starts with God. And so it's going to finish with God. Faithful is he who has called you who also will bring it to pass. Where, where did it begin with God? Then we looked at it began with God in eternity past. And in the first chapter, it began with you personally the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior. And what God began in you, according to the same author in a different letter, Philippians chapter 1, what he began in you, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who has called you, who also will do it. So as we await seeing Jesus, that excitement of seeing him governs how we live. Now we're going to look this week, and maybe the next time we're together, how do we live? We looked at the nature of faithfulness. Now we want to look at how is that faithfulness nurtured? How is it nurtured? How do we help each other live the will of God day to day as we all excitedly await seeing Jesus. All right? So a couple things I want to mention about this book before we continue, if you take notes. Right? There's not one direct address in these five chapters to a pastor-teacher. This is a letter written to the church of Thessalonica. First and Second Timothy, Titus, those are three letters written to a pastor. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, there's a particular text there written directly to pastors. But not all, all pastors are under the authority of all Scripture for their own living, but not every passage directly addresses a pastor-teacher, and this is, this is a letter where that's not done one time. This is for you and for me, all of us, just as saints. 
Just as people who own Christ. I think you also need to understand that this church was probably the most persecuted church in all of the first century for what they believed about Jesus. Paul mentions that at least four times in these five chapters. They had been beaten up emotionally, spiritually, and physically for leaving religion, leaving paganism, and joining their hearts to Christ. We also have to understand about this church is that these people were economically impoverished. They were poor people. This church is part of the churches of the Macedonian region that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And when the collection was being done among all the churches in support of Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the text there describes that these people, among other people in this region that gave, they gave out of their pennies, not their thousands. So there are poor people, there are persecuted people. But they're an anticipatory people. They're people of great anticipation. And as I mentioned in brief last week, you might say, well, because they were persecuted and they were poor, well, certainly this old world was a tougher place for them to be, so certainly they were looking to Jesus. Well, we have to remember all the other Bible passages we looked at of other people that weren't as persecuted, that weren't as poor, and the same admonition to look to Jesus is there for them. So persecution or financial demographic, it doesn't matter. God's grace compels all of us to look to Jesus, and then that anticipation helps us govern the way we live. Go, to me, go with me to chapter 1. You may already be there. And let's look at the first way that our faith functions as a fruit of looking for the return of Jesus. Right after this section in verses 2 through 5 that describes their reception of the gospel, having been born again, I find it very interesting here in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the first action of newly saved people. It says here, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. That's the first mention of this, these spiritual trials and persecution they were going through. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I was doing more study on this letter this week, and I find it amazing. Another aspect um, about this church is that most historians believe that this church was anywhere from only a year old in the Lord to 36 months old in the Lord. So this is a young church. For those of you that know your Bibles better because you've been born again longer, we're post-Acts, okay? There's a lot of sensational, what we would call apostolic things happening in Acts, but this is normal New Testament church living. 
And the first thing these new believers did after they were saved, they found someone to follow. They found someone to follow. And that's critical for every new believer in this room. Being attached to someone that you can begin to investigate God's Word with that someone on your journey in your Christian walk. Babies need bottle fed. Right? How consistent does that feeding need to be? How personal is that feeding? Life can't be sustained without it, would you agree? For physical little ones. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that when we were saved, we were as newborn babes and we craved, we lusted after the milk of the Word. We have membership classes usually twice a year here. Those classes range in number. Um, This last one I think had like 32 in it. Every time we have one of those classes, they typically... Uh, The makeup of those classes are brand new believers or those who uh, have been coming here for a while, maybe from out of state, checking us out, so to speak, and then other people from area churches who uh, have stopped preaching God's Word and and they've gone more to an entertainment style than a word-based kind of thing. And... and, um, But what I find out is from people that were established in churches out of state or in the area, when we get into the nature and makeup and the function of the church, and we ask them, how many of you were discipled by somebody or have ever been discipled by someone since you got saved? It's almost 100% in every class. The text is very simply plain here. One famous pastor that I love to read said, when the scripture gives common sense, seek no other sense. They've received the gospel here in verses 2 through 5, and the first thing they did was what? And you became followers. The word follower here is where we get our English word mimic. What's a mimic? It's a mimic, (laughs) right? What's a mimic? It's a mimic. You do partially or kind of half what the other person does, or you do all? All. If it's according to the Word of God. This is the natural impulse of all believers. But if it's not maintenanced early... They begin to grow themselves. And they'll get attached to a church and they'll maybe grow through some sermons given from a a stage or a lectern in a classroom and they'll learn by kind of watching people be busy in that church. But it's not a truly healthy growth. It's not the most healthy growth. Now, God's merciful and He'll protect His sheep during that time in allowing them to grow as best they can, as self-feeders, as observers. But the text says here, you immediately became a follower of somebody. 
For those of you who are at Grace, you know for some time that we've been trying to achieve this very practical goal that's right here in Scripture. You've heard us say over and over and over again, everyone try to win one soul to Christ. Everyone, while you're waiting to win someone, follow someone more mature than you, right? So that you can be prepared to lead one soul in the Word of God. And while you're doing that, try to take one, one class a year, to strengthen your spiritual muscle so that you can do what? Properly win, follow, and lead. Isn't that simple? We should probably say that more often according to this text. Everyone win one, follow one, lead one, take one. It's simple. And we're going to prove all those ones right from this church, right from this book, okay? But this is the first natural instinct of a baby when they're brought into your home. They need their mom. Dads are cool too, but in those early days, they really need their mom. Spiritual babies really need someone more mature than they are right away. But a lot of us weren't reared in churches that did that. I really think that's why the state of the church in our country is a mess. We're not healthy. We're very busy. We're great entertainers. We're great program people. We're great event people. But a lot of us never got the milk nourishment like we should have had from the moment we were born again forward. And so now when, we ask, when we're asked to, to actually go feed another baby, we're like, what? I'm not touching that bottle. You get me? I can remember when I was you know, a pastor's kid, I grew up in a pastor's home, and a pastor's kid's just supposed to do anything and everything every moment they're asked. And I can remember when I was in the seventh grade, I was asked to babysit. I was like, dude, that's a girl's job. <laughs> All right? It's what I told my dad. It's like, no. So he said, Judy, you've got this one, right? So he gave the responsibility to my mom to try to convince me to go babysit. It's like, mom, I'm not doing that. That's a girl's job, right? Tim, you're babysitting. And it's going to include making a bottle. It's going to include changing a diaper. So I'm not doing that. You can't make me do that. To which she went back and got my dad, right? <laughs> she says, you're going to do this, right? I had to do it, right? So when I'm in that environment, seventh grade, right? My mom didn't take me through any practice sessions on a doll. What do you do, right? You got to follow the directions, right? To the T, so the lady had a little post-it card, or a three-by-five card she taped on her cabinet. And, and back then, in the dark ages, you, you, know, you kind of warmed up the milk on the stove. Do you girls, ladies remember that? Little plastic bottles with the little plastic inside the plastic formula and stuck it in the pan. Right? It was a traumatic experience for me. That's why I remember. Right? And then, and then what do you have to do, right? Step number four, take it, put a dab on your wrist. Do you remember that? The dab, dab. And if you feel it's too hot, you got to put a little on your tongue. What? <laughs> you got to put it on your tongue? It was bad. It was bad. But I had to do it, and I had to feed that little one, right? 
And I had to change that little one. Something I did not want to do because I was not prepared to do it. But we're the same way when it comes to nurturing another new baby. A lot of us are scared to death to do it because we ourselves were never spiritually nurtured that way. We weren't prepared to help lead someone else in their spiritual growth. Right? Right? So when we're asked, we're like, what? Oh, that's not how I do church. I'm glad to come. I'm glad to give. I'm glad to sing. I'm glad to serve. Let me make a meal. I'll go visit someone in the hospital. I'll help with an event. I'll bake cookies for Christmas. I'll even act in the play. I'll sing in the choir. I'll usher. I'll do the sound booth. I'll even work with children in the nursery. But you're going to ask me to help someone learn the Bible. Yeah, I can't go there. That's not, what do we hear, right? That's not my gift. Right? <laughs> Sorry. You know, it's not my gift. Right? So, <laughs> so what I find really interesting about this first injunction in verses 6 and 7, it doesn't qualify what gift you have. It just says you collectively became a follower of somebody. Those are awkward early days, aren't they? At the end of the day, once we settle in, it's great to always know we've got that person, that spiritual mentor. And by the way, pastors haven't been brought into the picture yet. Remember I said all five chapters, no pastors mentioned. So pastors need to have someone they're following. And this pastor does. Twice a week. Someone more mature than I am. Because I could never ask you to stand up, and stand up and ask you to do the same thing if I wasn't doing it. It's church at its most simple function, my friends. Isn't it? Amen. So simple and so ordinary to most in our world, it seems absolutely unnecessary and mundane but it is actually the foundation of the future success of the church. Word-saturated people, individuals with the Lord, then individuals with another individual, and those individuals training someone else long before we get to this corporate understanding of the Word of God from one voice. We're hearing it from individual voices and then being trained to ultimately take the Bible and say, you know what? Thus saith the Lord for you. That, that absolutely impossible task for you now, in time God would equip you to do. Okay? And what happens in verse 7 again? They went from followers to example. From followers to example. Not just in their own city, but what does it say? To their regions beyond their own city. To their regions beyond their own city. This is the nurturing of the faithfulness. The nature, it begins with God in eternity past. It begins with Christ and us and salvation. It will be performed until we see Jesus as we grow in Christ's likeness. But this is where we're at. The nurturing of this faithfulness continues over in chapter 2. If you'll go with me there and we'll probably wrap up there today, okay? 
over into chapter 2. Now, we're not going to look at all the verses in this section, but really this section, if you're taking notes, is inclusive of verses 1 to 13. 1 to 13. And if you're taking notes, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, is really about how we nurture ourselves practically with our disposition, our demeanor. Okay? You always hear me say things like, we need to do the right thing the right way. When we do the right thing the wrong way, it's wrong. So I could stand up and I could shout and scream and get angry about everything that's in the Bible to tell you to do it if you're not doing it, but it's going to fall on deaf ears and probably you should run like a jackrabbit because I'm doing the right thing the wrong way. Everything we do, according to the Word of God, we need to be doing governed by the Spirit of God, right? In Galatians chapter 5, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, patience, right? Meekness, self-control. There's a lot of Christians that do the right thing, but they do it outside the governance of the Holy Spirit, and they still call it right, and we're like saying, nah, no, no. Christians, God hasn't called to be angry, screamers, yellers, debaters. Just be ministers. Right? So what does Paul do here? All Paul simply does here is review his demeanor and his disposition when he first met the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17. So at the beginning of chapter 2, all I want you to do, if you believe in writing in your Bibles, is write down Acts 17, because he's going to, in chapter 2, discuss now, he's going to kind of open up his chest here, he's open up his heart, and he's going to explain to them what he does not tell us in Acts 17 when he first met the Thessalonian believers. When this church started a year to three years ago, from the time he writes this letter. And what does he say here in chapter number two? For you know, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered, you remember his imprisonment there in Philippi? As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So he's saying, I came from a persecuted place in Philippi, and I'm coming to your persecution, but we still gave you the gospel amid your own oppositions. That's the second time in this book he's mentioned that these were persecuted people. But he's still coming to speak the gospel. This is his motivation. Verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by any deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext to get money for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory 
from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. Right next to that phrase, I want you to cross-reference chapter 1, verse 6. You became followers of us. Not just our message, the gospel, but our person. Our person. Our lives. They began to mimic the way they lived. And you say, Pastor Tim, that's nuts. I'm my own person. And my friends, I will tell you that if, since we're studying God's Word, this is going to be countercultural to Americanism. Receive the gospel. Jesus is in our hearts. Natural inclination. Let's be bottle fed by someone who's lived in this Christian life a little bit longer. We have as long as it's according to the Word of God. Not philosophies of man. Or religiosity. Okay? We departed and gave to you our lives because you had become very dear to us. And to me, folks, those are, those are, those are phrases of tremendous endearment. This is family. He's going to, he's going to explain later on in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 Paul really can't even get up and live on Monday and day-to-day without this affectionate spiritual relationship with God's people. Can't have it. What we're going to see in the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, is, is it's going to be somewhat antithetical to the way me and the many of us have experienced church It's been fast, it's been busy, it's been programmatic, it's been growing. We don't often stop and smell the personal spiritual roses together. Okay? But this is really, this is really what Paul's saying here has naturally happened. He says here in verse 9, For you recall, he's going back to Acts 17, Brethren, our labor and our hardship... How working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel. He's always clear on his message. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The beginning of verse 12 here is what we call a purpose clause. What's the purpose of these intimate spiritual relationships of following someone that's more spiritually mature than us? It's got an end goal. It's got an end goal, and that's it. The purpose is what? 
so that you would learn from them what they've learned from God and his word because they've learned it from someone that's more spiritually mature than they. So that you would walk in a manner that is Christ-like, worthy of God. Because remember, he's, he's the God who called you, right? First Thessalonians 5, and he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What's he performing? This. Your own spiritual personal growth in this organic, interdependent, connected way right inside your local church family. Verse 13 crescendos into an individual ability that they're able to enjoy and practice in their own lives because of what we've seen in verses 1 to 12. And what does any pastor, what does any believer want their people to individually be able to do? It's right here in verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who what? Who believe. Who believe. That's the end goal. Individual discerners of the word of God who are interdependently connected in the local church with someone more spiritually than they, because that person is connected to someone more spiritually mature than them, and all this is organically working unto one end. Walk worthy of God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, I believe it's the fifth verse, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of God among those who don't know God. So Paul, who wrote this letter and also wrote that letter, saying this, this development of yourself spiritually, individually and interdependently, ultimately has a tremendous influence on our testimony outside of our church family. Walking worthy of God according to his word, growing deep in the word, means that we're going to grow wide in our influence. You can't help that. It just naturally happens. And for those involved fervently in disciple-making ministry here, you understand exactly what I'm saying. I was reading a book recently that had, had um, and I've told you this on Wednesday nights, um, had quoted a Barna study. Some of you are familiar with the Christian polling group, uh, the Barna group. And this particular author, his name was Jim Stump. Jim had quoted Barna, and he said 95% of Christian evangelicals in America have never won someone to Jesus Christ. Well, years ago, that used to be, to me, that would have been like, what? Why? That's nuts. Everyone should be doing that. But you know what? According to the flow of this text, I see why that's not happening, Honestly. And you know what? It's not the people's fault. It's the pastor's fault. Right? 
Pastors weren't living disciple-making lifestyles, so why in the world would their people? So I have to confess and repent my own sin. To the point, to get to the point, we're going to properly lead you. What is an example of a disciple-making worshiper in our culture? So if I imitate someone who's more spiritually mature than I am according to the Word of God, and I'm being trained to train somebody else, all right? so I'm going deeper in the Word myself, I'm going deeper in the Word with someone in front of me, with someone behind me. The text says, and Paul also says, We'll see this later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. We won't go there now. That's the next time, the natural results of this faithful fellowship. The deeper you go in the Word, God's going to give you opportunities to share Christ with someone who doesn't know Him. And it just naturally happens in the scope and sphere of your own life. So years ago, what do we do? In order to give the gospel, we go door to door. In order to give the gospel, we have the war right? The evangelistic outreach, okay? In order to give the gospel, we have a Christmas program. In order to give the gospel, we do this, we do this, we do this. Soccer camp, Grace Bible Day camp. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But a pure and simple understanding of God's word is this, that as you grow deeper in the word, you individually become the mouthpieces of the gospel in our community. The simple scriptural reality is this, that God gives you the ability and the opportunity right where you are. As you pray for needy people who need Jesus, he's going to give you the opportunity, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. According to his word. To the point that any true healthy church should be able to numerically grow, listen, through new birth, not through attracting people through programs. Any true church should be able to grow by new birth without having to have any of these programs or big event outreaches. If we truly understand what the book says. That's simple. Individuals owning the word in an interdependent way. As we go deeper, our influence will go broader, and we'll continue to see that the next time we're together. Okay? But remember, it's our anticipation of seeing Jesus that drives this kind of living. Are you with me? Amen. We've been so mandate-based in our Christianity. We've been so driven by follow the word, follow the commands, follow the commands, follow the commands, follow the commands. And certainly, we need to follow the commands. But what drives us to do that? It's our hope of seeing Jesus. That keeps it exciting, <laughs> anticipatory, right? Something to look forward to. It's not that I have to do the Word of God. It's I get to do the Word of God because I may see Jesus today. Amen. I may see Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of your word as we just go line by line and verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book. And, um, certainly, Lord, I don't, I don't have the greatest degree of the pastor-teacher gift, but the simple reading of, of your word should be enough 
for us and a simple explanation of it this morning to compel our hearts by the Holy Spirit's help to just really, truly, um, maybe, maybe reevaluate the way we live. Uh, we're doing a lot of right things, but maybe 2019 for, for some of us would be a journey back to the most simple and necessary things in our Christian walk so that we might truly understand what it means to, to, to know your word and to be an influence for Christ right where we live. In his name we pray. Amen.